The prosecution has rested. The defense is beginning its case. But in the context of a new police shooting in Brooklyn Center, right near the courthouse in Minneapolis, will the jury be able to render a fair decision in the courtroom in light of what's happening outside of the courtroom? You'll hear my skepticism on The Der Show. The prosecution rested its case in the Derek Chauvin uh, uh, trial, and the defense is now beginning to put on uh, its case. Uh, the defense is beginning in a very, very technical and uh, uninspiring way. Um, they're putting on uh, uh, the arresting officer and the paramedic who treated uh, George Floyd uh, a year earlier when he was arrested and he was addicted to opioids and he had very, very high blood pressure. But uh, it's not the way to begin a case. It's not the way to open a defense case. Uh, at least in my experience, the successful defense cases start dramatically and end dramatically. They usually start with the strongest possible witness, in this case, perhaps somebody who could rebut uh, the token evidence on causation, and they usually end with a defendant if he takes the stand, being the last witness and taking the witness stand. We still don't know, at least I don't know, whether the defense is going to uh, put on the defendant, but um, an inauspicious uh, beginning. Uh, I also don't know whether or not the defense has made a motion to strike the uh, second-degree murder charge, because the second-degree murder charge simply wasn't established in the prosecution's case as a matter of law. <clears throat> and there should be a motion to strike that. Maybe it will come at the close of all the evidence. Different uh, states have different traditions and different rules as to when you make that motion. But it's essential that that motion be made. First of all, it could be granted, though it's always uphill. But second of all, it preserves the um, issue for appeal. And I think there will have to be an appeal in this case, because at least the way it looks like it's going now, um, it is likely there'll be a conviction on something. I think the big issue is whether it will be manslaughter or third-degree murder. Uh, again, second-degree murder, if there is a conviction, I think will be reversed on appeal. But third-degree murder, possible arguments on appeal as a matter of law. Manslaughter, the evidence seems pretty overwhelming. I don't even see what the appellate issues would be on <clears throat> manslaughter. There would be appellate issues regarding the entire case, or, for example, A, whether the case should have been tried, when it was tried, and where it was tried. Minneapolis, just uh, weeks after a major settlement in the case and in the face of public demonstrations and outcries. Uh, so, in my view, the case should never have been tried in Minneapolis and shouldn't have been tried now. It should have been delayed and tried in a rural area of Minnesota. Second, whether the jurors should have been sequestered. That is kept from uh, public uh, information because they're getting fed information. For example, if you watch CNN, you're not seeing a news analysis of the case. You're seeing a bunch of cheerleaders for the prosecution. Everything the prosecution does is right. Everything the defense does is wrong. Um, it's not only that. It's not legal analysis. It's cheering for a result, which is typical of CNN. CNN is no longer a news source. It's a you know, biased uh, partisan propaganda source. And that's true in this case, as well as it is in reporting national and international news. But 
if you watch uh, the case on CNN, you're going to think it's not even a close case. There's no legal issues. If you watch it on court TV, on the other hand, you'll at least get a sense that there are some legal issues in the case. You have far less of a cheerleader squad um, moderating it on, on court TV than you do on, on CNN. Uh, the big news, of course, is not what's going on in the courtroom. It's going on outside the courtroom. The, the killing in Brooklyn Center uh, of a young man, uh, 20 years old, a young black man, who was killed by a woman uh, police officer who mistakenly shot him uh, with a gun instead of with a, a taser. And, and this has caused enormous numbers of demonstrations. It's inconceivable to me that some jurors don't know about this and don't see this as part of a pattern. Um, I don't myself see it as part of a pattern. I think you might argue that stopping this young uh, black man um, would not have happened had he been an older white man or woman. I don't know the answer to that uh, question. But once uh, he was being arrested, and he bolted back into the car and managed to get in, into the car and drive away, actually, it was appropriate at that point for him to be uh, subdued, uh, whether by taser or by physical force removing him from uh, the car. And if, in fact, the police officer, an experienced woman with many, many years, who was, in fact, training younger people uh, on the scene, if, in fact, she just made a mistake, an honest mistake, uh, a negligent mistake, to be sure, and one that cost a human life. But if she just made a mistake, if she was intending to shoot him with a taser, and she was yelling, taser, 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 and then she said, oh, my God, I shot him, you know, that's a tragedy. That's a mistake. That's not a cause for uh, demonstrations. That's not a cause for violence. That's not a cause for opening up a criminal investigation. Uh, mistakes are made, and mistakes are not crimes. They may be torts, uh, which means that the state, again, may be responsible, or the city, to pay the family. Uh, it's a terrible tragedy. Um, I don't think it was a crime to stop him and arrest him and, and look into whether there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest and what the outstanding warrant was for. Um, you know, the poor young man called his parents and said, oh, my God, I'm being arrested. And it's every African-American parents' nightmare to have a 20-year-old son arrested by the police uh, because you just never know what's going to be the result. I mean, all of my friends, all of my African-American friends give the talk to their kids when they're 12 and 13. I used to give the talk to my class in, in criminal law. Uh, when I started teaching in 1964, out of 150 or 60 students, there may have been only a handful of African-American students. But I would always start my class when I talked about the Fourth Amendment arrests by saying, um, I just want to tell you, you're going to learn a lot about what your rights are in this class. But I'm also going to teach you, particularly if you're a young African-American male, not to necessarily raise those rights uh, when you're arrested. Uh, if you're arrested, be submissive, show your hands, show that you have nothing, don't reach for your pockets, tell the police officer if he wants ID, he should reach into the pocket. Always keep your hands visible. Always say, yes, sir. Yeah, memorize the name on the officer's or the number on the officer's identification. And what I said to my students is, don't ever fight back out there. They have the advantage. They have the gun. It's usually late at night. They have police officers who will testify in support of 
the blue line. Um, but if you think you've been mistreated, then come to see me and we'll bring a lawsuit. And in the courtroom, we have the advantage. In the outside alleyways, they have the advantage. And don't confront them in a situation where they have the advantage. Make sure if you do confront them, you confront them in a situation where you have the advantage. Look, police officers are in danger. Many, many, many more police officers are killed than are reported by the media. Just recently, I watched a terrible, terrible encounter uh, uh, on a video where a police officer very, very politely stops a car, and he deals with the person in the car extremely politely. Yes, sir, would you please uh, remove yourself from the car? Um, oh, you do have a weapon. Yeah, don't reach for your weapon. Just come out of the car and, and put your hands up. The, the most extremely polite police officer you can imagine. And the guy gets out of the car, reaches in, pulls out an automatic weapon, and murders the policeman in cold blood. It's all there on the videotape. Uh, but you don't see protests about that, and you don't see massive coverage about that. It's interesting that uh, CNN, despite its one-sidedness, was running a picture at the same time that you saw the testimony in the uh, Chauvin case. They were running a picture on the other side of the screen of the police officer on the Capitol grounds that was uh, murdered, uh, killed by a terrorist in a car who ran him down, ran him over. Um, and uh, it at least showed two sides of the issue. We, we really have to understand that uh, police officers today are at great risk, um, as are young African-American men who are arrested. Both are at too great a risk. And we have to make sure that we take action that reduces uh, violence and deaths among both categories of uh, people. Look, the death that occurred in, in, in Brooklyn Center, uh, as I said, was an accident and a tragedy, but it also reflected something positive. Uh, many of us who are liberals and who both support the police and support reasonable efforts to control police uh, mis misconduct um, favor the use of tasers. We want to make sure that police officers, every police officer, has not only a lethal weapon, but a non-lethal weapon as well, and use the non-lethal weapon as frequently as possible in lieu of the lethal weapon. Now, of course, lethal weapons and non-lethal weapons vary over time. Non-lethal weapons can be extraordinary dangerous. Uh, billy clubs are non-lethal weapons. Police dogs are non-lethal weapons, and we associate them with not the best form of policing. But tasers and sprays and other forms of non-lethal weapons in Israel, they use a glue that doesn't allow the person to escape and run. It kind of traps him where he is. And they also use extraordinarily bad-smelling um, material to disperse crowds. They have obviously worked for years trying to develop non-lethal non alternatives to protect their police, their soldiers, and their citizens from often violent demonstrations. Uh, but my concern about the, the Chauvin case is that Brooklyn Center will enter the courtroom, uh, that it will not remain just a media story, but it could influence uh, jurors and could influence the outcome of the case. I'm not rooting for any particular outcome. I've given you my analysis on the basis of the evidence I've seen. 
I think the state has proved uh, causation sufficiently, and I think they've proved sufficient intent to get a verdict of uh, manslaughter in the second degree. I do not think they have proved murder either in the second degree or third degree, but uh, let's wait until all the evidence comes in. But right now, I'm in a position to say, having heard the prosecution's case, if I were the judge, I would throw out both the second and third degree murder charges. I don't think they have been established. Second degree murder hasn't been established because you can't have felony murder when you have a developing crime like assault that merges and becomes the killing. Uh, traditionally, that doesn't justify a felony murder, which is the only way you can get a conviction under murder two. Nor would it justify a conviction under murder three, which requires extraordinarily dangerous conduct, endangering the lives of others. Others, the plain meaning of others in the statute is other people than the victim himself, shooting into a crowded building, shooting into a bus, shooting into a darkened house, as happened, uh, killing the person and also endangering the lives of neighbors next door. That's what second-degree murder should be interpreted to mean. That's what third-degree murder, I'm sorry, should be interpreted to mean. In, under Minnesota law, but that's not the way the Court of Appeals uh, has defined it. So uh, uh, the trial judge may have no choice but to instruct on third-degree murder, but he has a choice not to allow the jury to decide second-degree murder because there's just no lawful admitted evidence that would justify a second-degree murder conviction in this case. Manslaughter is very different. There is enough evidence to justify manslaughter. It's still going to be up to the jury. The jury could reject causation. The jury could reject intent. Now there's a tremendous amount of pressure, I think, on the defense to put Chauvin on the witness stand. Uh, it's starting its case very slowly, very undramatically, very inefficiently, in my view. Um, but all that will be forgotten if Chauvin takes the witness stand. And in the end, I think when you're losing when it sounds like you're going to be uh, convicted, uh, the idea of taking the chance of putting the defendant on the witness stand. And it's very chancy to do that, because when you put the defendant on the witness stand, it opens them up to the kind of cross-examination and the admission of evidence that would otherwise not be able to come in if he didn't take the stand. So it's going to be a hard decision. I've said this before about my friend who used to charge $100,000 to try a case. 5,000 of which was for what he did in the courtroom, 95,000 for the advice he gives as to whether to take the stand or not. I've also mentioned to you that when I visit prisoners in prison and the, the, the cellmates gather around me, they all have one complaint. They blame being in prison on their lawyers. Half of them say their lawyers put them in prison by putting them on the stand. The other half say the lawyers put them in prison for not putting them on the stand. Everybody agrees that the decision to put the defendant on the stand is often the critical one. Look at the O.J. case. He didn't take the stand. My advice was he shouldn't take the stand. He didn't take the stand, and he prevailed in the criminal case. He did take the stand, as he had to, in the civil case, and he was found liable in the civil case. The evidence otherwise was fairly similar, but uh, he was not really able to answer questions about the assault of conduct against his wife. Um, which preceded uh, her, her death. So um, this is a very, very hard decision. But I think, again, I don't want to second-guess lawyers because I don't know all the facts. I don't know what uh, skeletons might lie in the closet of Chauvin and um, whether or not 
putting them on the stand will be an advantage or a disadvantage. But right now, I would think the presumption has to be that he will take the stand. And if he does, all bets are off because the jury will look him in the eye. The jury will decide whether they believe him. The jury will hear his rendition of whether he was scared, what he thought of the crowds around him. And much of the other evidence will pale in comparison to what the defendant himself testifies to. So stay tuned. The case isn't over, except if you're watching CNN. The case was over before it began, if you're watching CNN. But if you're watching any objective news analysis or listening to any objective legal scholars or commentators, you'll know that when there's a chance the defendant can take the witness stand, the case is never over until the defendant testifies, is cross-examined, the judge instructs, and you hear the closing arguments of both sides. After that, you can make a reasonable prediction and begin to read the tea leaves as to how the jury will decide. But before then, it's going to be highly speculative, and especially in light of the outside pressures that the jury is definitely exposed to. The jury will be sequestered once they deliberate, but they will not be sequestered now. The defense made a motion again just yesterday, I think, to sequester the jury in light of what happened in Brooklyn Center. But it was denied, and the judge reasoned that sequestering now might send a message that was not an appropriate message. He should have sequestered the jury earlier. Uh, at the very beginning, they should not have been exposed to the news media and the reports of what's going on outside the courtroom. So stay tuned. Interested in your views. You're watching it. I'm watching it. Um, I have experience in these kinds of cases, but you're the jurors. Uh, my listeners and viewers, you're the jurors. You're the kind of people who will be making this decision. So you have an even greater expertise than I do on how the jury is likely to react to this testimony. And I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about that. Uh, and now we'll turn to my favorite part of the show, The Der Show, and that is the wits, the calls the comments, the statements, the criticisms, the condemnations from my viewers and listeners. Our first call. Hi, this is Richard from Boca Raton, Florida. My question is, if Mr. Floyd did not die, would the officer or should the officer be charged with attempted murder? I look forward to your reply. Thank you. It's a great question, and I don't think you know that I'm probably the leading expert uh, in the world, perhaps, on attempted murder. I have written many, many articles on it. My first piece uh, that I wrote for the Yale Law Journal was on attempted murder. I have litigated the most important attempted murder cases, and so I'm the guy on attempted murder. Now, for there to be attempted murder, you have to have an intent to commit murder. You can't get attempted murder based on... Uh, the intent necessary for manslaughter. So the short answer for the question is no. I don't think, on the basis of the evidence I've heard, you could get a conviction for attempted murder. You could possibly get a conviction, though, for reckless disregard of human life. Most states have a statute that is the equivalent of attempted murder, but for recklessness. And I think a conviction under that statute would be possible, but probably not for attempted murder. Good question. Hi, Professor. It's Shalom from Milwaukee. My question to you is, if by some miscarriage of justice, former officer Chauvin is convicted of something 
that you said in your podcast about whether or not they're overcharging him, one of those things you, you said he didn't do or like doesn't fit the crime, will you, I don't know what the legal procedures would be then, I'm sure he will file an appeal, but if asked, would you help defend him and get his sentence diminished? And the only reason I'm asking is because I've heard on your show how how vocal how vocally opposed you are to him and what he did, and you believe that he should be punished as 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 everybody should, I believe. But I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Thank you. Great question. My personal views of his moral culpability would be irrelevant in any decision to take the case. If he were convicted of second-degree murder and I were asked to participate or help in the appeal, I would certainly give it serious consideration. I don't think there's a justification for a second-degree murder conviction in this case. I think the same would be true of third-degree murder. But A, I haven't been asked. B, I'd have to look at the record of the case. I'd have to see whether I could do value added and also see what my time situation is. And um, But it's not something that would be beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, I do cases like this all the time. And um, uh, I, my own personal views of uh, the moral culpability of the defendant are never relevant in deciding what kind of cases to take. Salutations, Professor Dershowitz. Joe from New York. A democratically passed and enacted state law predicated upon the principle that its application will apply equally to all people, regardless of their amount of melanin, ethnicity, sex, creed, height, weight, and age above the legal age, is by definition a good law. A boycott predicated upon the anti-principle of the, quote, bigotry of low expectations, end quote, for people with a certain amount of melanin or from a certain ethnicity or of a certain sex, etc., is a bad law. Georgia's democratically enacted voter law applies equally to all American citizens of voting age, and the only people arguing against it are people, including blacks, who exhibit bigotry against blacks deeming them incapable of obeying the requisites and prohibitions within the law that virtually no one even suggests Caucasians and Asians will be unable to. This is one of the worst types of bigotry, systemic bigotry, that says blacks are somehow inferior to Caucasians and Asians, not unlike what Joe Biden implied when he said, quote, poor kids are just as bright as white kids, end quote, as if there are no poor Caucasian kids, implicitly acknowledging that many people harbor the bigoted belief that poor kids are not as bright as white kids and are therefore somehow inferior. That's bigotry. Interesting point. I fundamentally disagree with your premise that just because a law applies equally to all people, it's a good law. <laughs> terrible, terrible laws that have been passed over the years that apply equally to everybody. They're equally bad, no matter who they apply to. Um, you make a point that uh, if the law applies equally to everybody, then it doesn't run afoul of the Equal Protection Clause. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. It depends. Some some argue that you look at the intent of the law. Was it intended to disenfranchise 
uh, people of a certain background. Uh, my own view is that the Georgia law is not racist in intention, and it is not uh, racist in uh, underlying motive. It's political. Um, the Republicans want to get more Republicans to vote and fewer Democrats to vote. Um, I don't think they care whether the voters who they want to stay home, uh, the Democrat voters, are black or white. This is all about politics. It's like uh, uh, gerrymandering or reapportionment. When one party wins uh, the governorship and the legislature, they tend to gerrymander and they tend to create districts that are favorable to their own political system. So I don't think this is as much about race as it is about uh, politics. And um, uh, I think you have to look at the law very carefully and read all of its provisions. I agree with you that uh, requiring um, a voter ID, I haven't seen the evidence that that has a differential or racial impact. It's interesting that um, uh, conservatives uh, want uh, ID for voting, but not to show that you've gotten vaccinated. And liberals or people on the left seem to want everybody to carry an ID to show you've been vaccinated, but not to vote. Uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy on both sides uh, there. I do think that IDs are the wave of the future. Uh, they ought to be made easily accessible. They ought to be able to get them anywhere very easily if you can show um, you know, a series of uh, identifying proofs that you are who you are, you're still alive, and you live where you claim you live. It should be very easy to get uh, ID. And if it's very easy to get ID, um, but safe and, and, and effective, then I don't see any, any problem. The New York Times didn't see a problem. And the New York Times certainly would be the first to find a problem if there were one. Um, but they did an analysis of the voter law in Georgia and didn't see uh, evidence that it would have a differential uh, racial or even political impact. So I think one has to study it very, very uh, closely and, uh, and avoid stereotypes. I agree that one has to avoid all stereotypes about making judgments about people's uh, intelligence based on race. There's just no evidence whatsoever to support those kinds of uh, conclusions. Professor Dershowitz, Stephen, Pennsylvania. I have a possible solution for solving two vaccine problems that face our country, vaccination passports and voter identification. I believe in most negotiations, both parties leave partially satisfied and partially unsatisfied. Neither party ever gets everything they want, or rarely. So my suggestion is, on the right, and Republicans, I would say the majority, do not favor vaccination passports. But we will allow vaccination passports if, predominantly on the left and the Democratic side, will then have that passport used for voter identification, voter ID. Probably won't ever happen, but it'd be an interesting uh, way to maybe solve a few problems. Lastly, and, I, and I'm, I'm torn here, you keep mentioning segregation, segregation, and keeping the vaccinated separated from the vaccinated in order not to infect them, which is, is certainly a laudable goal. I just don't know how that's practiced. There'll be segregated areas, vaccinated areas, and the unvaccinated areas, and restaurants, ball games, Broadway shows, movies, uh, baseball games, et cetera. I don't see how that can possibly work, and I can't imagine you're suggesting unvaccinated people will be prohibited from attending those events. Mm -hmm. I look forward to your reply. Thank you very much. And again, love your podcast. Let me be very clear. I am advocating that 
unvaccinated people be excluded from events that uh, vaccinated people want to go to uh, safely. Um, there might be provisions where um, they can watch it on closed circuit or other kind of provisions. But no, I'm not going into a theater with unvaccinated people. And uh, my rights are uh, outweigh your rights. Um, I have been vaccinated and I want to keep myself and my family safe. Uh, there is an obligation uh, to be vaccinated. Uh, that's the presumption. The scientists support it. If you don't want to be vaccinated, maybe uh, we'll recognize that right. I think that's disputed. Uh, the Supreme Court has said they can compel you to be vaccinated. But if you don't want to be vaccinated, uh, you're not going to endanger my life. So, yes, I would favor excluding uh, unvaccinated people from events where vaccinated people want to go safely. But I do agree with your general view. I think if we have a vaccine a certificate, I wouldn't call it a passport, some vaccine certificate, I have one. Uh, I've gotten my two vaccinations and I have a card uh, with me, official government card that says the dates of my vaccination. I had a Pfizer vaccine and um, I'm not, I carry it with me. I, I'm happy to show it. Um, and uh, let's use it as a voter ID. Um, but we have to have things beyond that because even people who aren't vaccinated have the right to vote. There, certainly, I would not preclude vaccinated, unvaccinated people from voting. I might require them to stand on separate lines or maybe to vote by mail and not come down to the uh, place where you actually cast your vote if it's crowded. These are all things that I think we should be willing to consider. But we live in a different world. And, you know, before 9-11, nobody thought about IDs. Uh, you could walk into any airport. You could walk into any building. Uh, today, you can't go to an airport without an ID. You can't go to a, an office building without an ID. You can't go to a university without an ID. IDs have become uh, widely, widely used. And I don't see any problem with um, uh, having them more widely used and applying them both to uh, vaccination and also, if done properly, to voting. So, so here I disagree with my uh, colleagues on the left. I think that voter ID can, under the right circumstances, be a prerequisite to voting. And I disagree with my friends and colleagues on the right. I do think that vaccination IDs uh, can be compelled and as a condition of entering into crowded places where vaccinated people want to safely adhere to uh, safe social distancing. So, yeah, I'm prepared to compromise. And I, I suspect many of my viewers and listeners are prepared to compromise, but I'm interested in hearing your views. Those of you who take different views, there are some on both sides. Um, some who say, no, 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 never voter IDs for voting and yes, IDs for vaccination. And some say, no, 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 never IDs for vaccination and yes for voting. So I'd like to hear you defend your points of view if you have views on either of those extremes. But uh, keep calling, keep uh, listening, keep subscribing. Uh, I want to hear your views. I want to hear your wits on The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, 
everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.